Welcome everyone, welcome to Hope Brooklyn. Uh, my name is Russell. We are a new church that lives by this one statement that wherever you are on the spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Strike that, we live by many statements, but that is one. Uh, that's sort of our tagline. It's our way of saying that you don't have to be a Christian to be here and that wherever you are in your uh, place of faith with your searching for God or Jesus or your understanding of who the divine is, you are welcome here and there's a place at the table for you here. Um, if you got here a little late, you notice that we're doing something a little different. We're not doing announcements right now. We did them at the very beginning. So you need to be here at the very beginning to hear those announcements now or fill out a connection card. So that leads me to the next point. If this is your first time, or if you've never filled out a connection card, will you do that for us? They're in the seat back fanny packs on the back of your chairs. Um, they look kind of like that. You just put your name, uh, email. Look, I know we live in a world where we are very hesitant to give out our information. I promise you, we will not sell this unless we get a good asking price, all right? I, I promise you that. But it's our way of sort of just understanding who's part of the community, um, giving you a monthly email of what's coming up in the community, as well as planning, because you know we do brunch every Sunday, so knowing how many people to gauge for for brunch. So if you'd fill that out for us and then drop it in the back after service, we have a generosity box. Drop it in there on the way out, that'd be great. As well as this is the time of the service uh, where we practice generosity. So if this is your first time, do not feel obligated to give at all. If this is your community, if this is your family, generosity is a core value of ours because it's a core value of God's. You see God throughout time talking to his people, both Israel and the church, about their money. And he does so because there are few things in this world more capable of leading us astray um, than the seduction of wealth. And so it's almost like a protection that he puts in place for us, as well as it meets a lot of practical needs so that we can buy brunch for everyone and rent this space. So if this is your family, would you consider partnering with us? Here are the ways you can do it. If you wanna do the old, old fashioned brick and mortar way, we have a generosity box in the back. Or if you're in the high tech world, you can text uh, any amount to that number, set up a quick account, and then here on out, if you text any number, it'll just automatically debit your account. We have Venmo as well. Um, or you can go online to our website and set up a recurring gift. And we're really grateful for all of the partners who are helping make Hope Brooklyn go. Um, before we jump into today's question, will you pray with me? <sighs> Lord, this, uh, this world is so loud sometimes, many times. There are so many voices crying out to be heard. It's almost as if we believe that if, we, if we're not heard, we don't exist. And your voice has been this deep bass note from the beginning of time. You have not altered your cadence. You have not altered your whisper. It goes out to all creation, as it always has. It's a voice of love. It's a voice of forgiveness. It's a voice calling your children to come home, that you're not angry. You're far from angry. You're jumping with joy, with love. So as we uh, consider your voice today as it's found in scripture, will you open our ears? 
wherever we may be in our understanding of who you are, God. Will you open our ears to hear your voice, the voice of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as it speaks to us. Thank you for your presence today. Thank you for this community. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So if it's your first time joining us, uh, we are in a series called Questions. The idea behind this series is that we polled you guys. We asked you guys to text in questions that you might have about faith, about life, about spirituality, about Jesus. And the most asked questions we sort of compiled together and we wrote sermons on. It's been an awesome series. You definitely wanna be here next week, a little plug, because our very own Josh Zapeta is preaching. You give it up for Josh. Josh is awesome. He's gonna be talking about the fatherhood of God, which I think is a really needed question. We, we talked about feminism and sort of the motherly attributes of God a couple weeks ago, but I think the fatherhood of God is, is something to consider as well, especially like what do we do if we had crafty fathers growing up? Um, how does that work out? And so he's awesome, I love him to death, super wise, so make sure you're here next week talking about the fatherhood. But today our question, as succinctly as possible, is what do we make of the Bible? What do we do with this, this thing that we call the Bible? And anyone who has done any sort of uh, delving into the history of this, this text realizes first that it's not a single text. This is a compilation of multiple texts, multiple documents from multiple authors spanning thousands of years and vastly different cultures. And moreover, when you dig a little deeper, you realize that this this book, this compilation of literature is comprised of thousands of manuscripts or, or like pieces of manuscripts. So we don't just discover Like we don't dig out of the ground the whole Gospel of Luke, we dig out of the ground chapter seven of the Gospel of Luke. And then we dig out of the ground chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians. So this is compiled from thousands of manuscripts and pieces of manuscripts and multiple authors and copies of manuscripts and copies of copies of manuscripts and copies of copies of copies of of manuscripts. And you realize when you look at the history of the stories recounted here that some of them aren't unique. So you read about Noah and the flood and you understand that there was a similar story called the Epic of Gilgamesh. What do we do with this? What do we do with this? Moreover, when you look at how the canon, which is another word for this and we'll talk in a second, how the canon came to be, how the church or the Hebrew um, rabbis decided that some books would be deemed holy and privileged and others not, it seems at first glance to be a process fraught with politics and differences in theology and the usage and the agreement or disagreement about different texts. We have a guy named Marcion who in 140 AD pretty much decided that his Bible was gonna be Paul's letters and some of Luke and that's it. And the church was like, no, 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 you can't do that. And so you have disagreements about that. Eusebius, he disputed the letter to James or the letter of James. He disputed Jude and two of the three Johns. The Catholic church, even today, they have a section of scripture called the Apocrypha. And the Apocrypha uh, is, is, is literature that came what we call the second temple period. So in between 200 BC 
In 70 AD, there was Jewish literature that arose and the Catholic Church has put that in their canon. If you're a Protestant of I am, and I use a Protestant Bible, the Apocrypha isn't in our Bible. What do we do with that? And yet Christians hold that within this book is a story. It's a story about our creator and about his creation. And it's a messy, complicated, convoluted story that is found in this book and nowhere else. Moreover, the people who originated this story, the Jewish people are still around to tell it, to live by it. So this is a privileged book in our eyes, a holy book. And if you grew up in the West, um, and if you grew up in Christian circles at all, you realize that the last 100 years, we've seen what's called a battle for the Bible. So you've had a liberal and conservative battle for this. You've had the mainline versus the evangelicals battling for this. The modernists versus the fundamentalists, the progressivists versus the traditionalists. Americans just love to fight battles. We do. So like, what do we do with this thing called the Bible? Can we trust it? What I wanna to do today is I wanna briefly, or maybe like the first half of our time, go through a little history. It's gonna be a little history lesson of how we arrived at the canon that we have today. And then once we get through that, we're gonna talk about, okay, well, what does that mean for us? And what does that, what does that say about our God? And can we trust this God? And can we trust this story? So first we're gonna jump into the history. The word um, that we've used for this is called the canon. The canonization process. Canon is a Greek word that means read, a read. And it was used as a measuring stick. So a canon for something is the rule or the standard, the measure that we use that sort of sets certain, um, certain pieces of a subject apart from others. So if you were gonna look at the canon of English literature, right? You'd have certain authors that adhere to a criteria such that they're part of that canon, like Shakespeare, and Alden, uh, and Cowper. And you have other English authors who for various reasons don't measure up. They don't adhere to the standard, so they're not part of the canon of English um, authors, of the, the highest form of English literature. So we're looking at how did we decide which books would be part of this canon and which were not. Now we don't have the space or the time to go into the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible and how they decided, because it has its own history of the canonization prophets, or the canonization process. Many theories, no clear picture. For us, what we need to know is this. The Hebrew Bible is divided into three sections. It's called the Tanakh. Uh, the first is the Torah, or the teaching, and that's the, the first five books of the Bible. Uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's the law of Moses. And then you have the Navim, the prophets, so that with there, we have Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and some others. And then you have the Katavim, or the writings, the Psalms, the Proverbs, wisdom literature. That's how you get to not. But suffice it to say, by the time of the first century, by the time that Jesus walked, we had a Hebrew Bible. We had a Jewish canon. So you have Jesus talking after his resurrection, and he's talking on the road to Emmaus, 
to two of his disciples and he said, this is what I told you when I was alive, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms and the Tanakh must be fulfilled. So we have a Hebrew canon by the time of Jesus. But what about the New Testament? How did we arrive at these sets of books and memoirs and writings that we call the New Testament? So here's the first thing to keep in mind. And I know it's gonna sound super obvious, but it's vastly significant. And it is this. What gave birth to the proliferation of documents was an event. An event about a person. Jesus of Nazareth. So the only reason that people started writing about anything was because this Jewish carpenter named Jesus, who hailed from a tiny podunk town called Nazareth, started an itinerant ministry, started preaching, started healing, started casting out demons, was crucified by the Roman Empire, and then allegedly was claimed by his followers to have been raised from the dead. The reason people started writing anything is because a person did some incredible things. Now, this is something to keep in mind. The first Christians, friends, were Jews. They were Jewish. So their their canon, their text, their holy story was the Old Testament. So what they would do is when they experienced this Jesus of Nazareth, they'd look back to the Old Testament and they'd be like, does this square up? And when they looked back, as they started examining who this Jesus is or who he was claimed to be as the Messiah, they found him everywhere. They found him everywhere. And thus this rumor, this rumor started spreading throughout Judea that the Messiah had come. The Jewish savior had finally come and he'd exercised authority by being raised from the dead. And as this story started spreading about this guy named Jesus of Nazareth, hearts began to be stirred and awoken. And this was complemented by God pouring out his Holy Spirit onto people, onto believers, almost sealing them as his own, as part of the family. So these first Jews experienced this guy named Jesus and they started proclaiming his story. They started telling it that the Messiah had come and he was raised from the dead. And they started using the Hebrew Bible to prove it. Some believed, others didn't. Then they started going to the Greeks, to non-Jewish cultures, and telling this story. And some believed, and others didn't. From that point, documents started to be written. So between about 45 and 100 AD, you have memoirs of Jesus's life, what we now call the Gospels, and letters being sent to various churches and what we call ecclesia, ecclesiae. And these were groups of people in towns who were gathering together to worship Jesus as God. Now it's important to know that of our New Testament writings, all but two of them were written by the late 60 AD. That's only 30 years after the events of Jesus's life. Paul's letters, most scholars hold that Paul wrote his letter to Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, was the first one, written around 49 or 50 AD. And the first gospel account was probably Mark, written around 66 AD. The last books in the New Testament canon to be written were John's letters, in around 90 to 100 AD. But that's still 
fairly recent to the Jesus event, which, Jesus event, which kind of inspired all these writings. So these letters and these memoirs were traveling around the Roman Empire, traveling around the churches, and many were written for multiple churches. So, going back, oral pronouncement. Jesus did his thing. People started telling his story. It was confirmed with spiritual manifestations of God's presence. That caused the spread of Christianity. Then the accumulation of text, letters, accounts of Jesus' life were meant to support the newly forming churches, to help form the new Christians' way of life in the Lord, to help shape their theology. In a sense, these texts were written as answers to questions like these new groups of people who are worshiping Jesus as Lord. Well, what does that mean? Or maybe they had worshiped at the cult um, of Artemis. Well, are we still allowed to worship Artemis or is it just Jesus? Or what about meat that was sacrificed to, to certain pagan gods? Well, how do we do that? How do we still live in the world as worshipers of Jesus? So these letters and these texts were written in response to that. Time goes on, more time goes on. And in between 100 and 200 AD, ecclesiais, churches multiply exponentially and they spread like wildfire across the Roman Empire. And since churches are multiplying and more and more people are involved, texts are multiplying. More documents are written, more letters, more accounts of Jesus' life are written. And theology multiplies and there's more and more disagreements about who Jesus is and what that means and how is he still the continuation of the Jewish story and what does that mean about how I should live. And so the gospel spreads to unique context with their own history, with their own culture, with their own religions. And there were disagreements over theology and ethics. And that would make sense, right? The questions that Christians have in New York City are gonna be different than the questions that Christians have in Kansas. And it's not better or worse, it's just different. It's a different context. Different things matter. And so these, these letters and these texts are being spread, are being copied and spread around the Roman Empire. Now most scholars hold that it was these disagreements in between 100 and 200 AD that sort of um, precipitated the development of the canon of the New Testament. Because you had these regional leaders of the ecclesiais who are debating matters of theology and debating matters of practice, and they realize, hey, we gotta figure out a standard. We gotta figure out a, a measurement, a rule of life that will help us lead people into the faith. And like I mentioned earlier, there's this guy named Marcion who in 140 AD, because he couldn't reconcile the God of the Old Testament and the God of Jesus, he split them. And he said, my Bible is gonna be just parts of Luke and Paul's letters. And the church was like, you can't do that. And so that sort of precipitated this, this, this conversation, many conversations of what makes certain letters, what makes Romans part of the Bible? How can we say Romans is God inspired? Why is the gospel of Judas, which is one of the Gnostic gospels, if you've read the Da Vinci Code, you've probably heard of it. Why is the gospel of Judas not part of the Bible? Why is that not 
inspired by God. So they started having these conversations. And the church, there was one church at the time, the church had three criteria that they used to make these decisions. The first was apostolicity. Apostolicity. Were the texts written by the first apostles who walked and lived with Jesus or written by one of their disciples? So um, the text, Romans was written by Paul. Paul had a firsthand account with the risen Jesus. So his texts were deemed authoritative. The Gospel of Luke, written um, seemingly by Luke, he was not a disciple of Jesus. However, he compiled his document, his account of Jesus' life, through what he calls eyewitness accounts. So he went and talked to people who did experience Jesus of Nazareth. And that's how he compiled his Gospel of Luke. So the first criteria was, in order for it to be considered holy, in order for it to be considered part of the canon, it had to be written by one of the first apostles. The second criteria is Catholicity. And that, the word Catholic means general, universal. So essentially, it's Catholic if the text speaks beyond its context. So the church is looking at the letter to the church in Rome and they say, does Romans speak to the church in Bithynia? Can it speak beyond itself? Now notice this is important. Universal does not necessarily mean not particular. We have a, a, a document in the New Testament called Philemon. It's a letter from Paul to a, one man, to one man named Philemon about how to handle a runaway slave named Onesimus. Now that's just a letter to one person and yet the church decided that this is Catholic in nature. The principles therein, um, what it advocates for is something that should be read and understood by all the churches all across the Roman Empire. So is it apostolic, is it Catholic, and finally, is it orthodox? And don't think of orthodox as do's and don'ts. Think about it this way. If they're making these decisions in between 100 and 200 AD, there's already been a set of practices, a set of teachings that have sort of become institutionalized within the church, which is necessary, like for us. We gather, we sing, we teach, we share the Lord's Supper. These are certain practices and rhythms. So does the text that we're considering, does it adhere to those practices or does it disagree with them? So these three criteria were used as the church started to decide what should be deemed part of the canon, what is privileged and set apart, and what is not. From that point on, Individual writings started to be clustered together and they were copied and recopied and disseminated to churches. So you have the Pauline epistles, Romans, Galatians, Corinthians, Philippians. They brought them all together into one document. It'd be like this. So you know how the Harry Potter series, there were seven books. Well, imagine if you took all seven books and put them into one book. That's gonna be a very big book, but that's like a cluster, right? That's what they did with this. They took Romans and Galatians and Philippians and they put them into one big book and started copying it and spreading it around the churches in the Roman Empire. And then from that point, the clusters started being put together into bigger clusters called canons. And the earliest um, example, the earliest evidence we have is the Muratorian canon. The Muratorian canon, which was around 170 AD and it lists the New Testament books that are considered Catholic and those not Catholic. 
And that's important because that shows us that as early as mid-second century, they are thinking through and already making distinctions between which books are apostolic, Catholic, and Orthodox, and which are not. And in that list in the Meritorian Canon contained almost all of the books that we have in our New Testament. Time goes on even more and we have the councils, the famous councils. The one you're probably most familiar with is the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. In the Council of Nicaea, Emperor Constantine, he assembles the church leaders and they discuss matters of theology, not the canon. We'll come back to that. But then finally in 397, it's the announcement of Carthage where they sent the complete New Testament canon as we know to the church in Rome. And they said, let the church across the sea be consulted for the confirmation of this canon. I know that was a lot, trust me, I do. But recap, it's important for where we go from here. Jesus does his thing. People are amazed. Holy Spirit is given to his followers. People start telling the story. They start telling the story. Churches start popping up. Groups of people who are following this Jesus. People are writing letters. Leaders of the churches are writing letters of encouragement, of exhortation um, to help form their theology, form their thinking. So they're writing letters. Those letters are grouped into clusters because there were so many of them that the church had to start grouping them together and then making distinctions based on the three criteria we talked earlier. From that, the clusters go even wider into canons. And we have our New Testament today. That's a messy history. There's lots of opportunity for malevolence involved in that. That was fun to say that way, malevolence. (laughs) What do we make of this? What do we do with this? Can it be trusted? Is this God's holy book? Now, when you look at the history of people's response to scripture, generally there are three theories, three theories. The first one is, and these are actually books uh, that are written about these theories. The first one is called holy dictation. And the theory is that it stresses the inerrancy of scripture. And what they mean by inerrant is that factual accuracy in all matters of history and science. The authors of scripture received divine revelation in the sense of knowing it was divine revelation and what they wrote and as it was copied and recopied and transcribed, it was without error of any kind. Now the issue with this view of inerrancy is that inerrancy really doesn't account for genres in scripture and what books are what genres. Case in point, if I go to the newspaper, I'm gonna read the front page differently than I read the comics, right? I'm not gonna read about Garfield eating lasagna and freak out and call pet services and be like, a cat just ate a whole lasagna. I'm not gonna do that because I know it's a comic. I know the genre. I know what it's trying to communicate. Now, if I read the hard news, I'm gonna read that differently. It's gonna influence how I receive it. Scripture is the same way. It's vastly different genres. You have Proverbs, which should be read differently than Psalms, 
What should be read differently than the gospel accounts? What should be read differently than letters written to churches? And inerrancy, the view of inerrancy, doesn't really have a, a robust understanding of what that means and how we should read these various genres differently. Inerrancy also doesn't take into account the nature of original languages um, and depends many times on interpretive leaps that even the most experienced scholars would not make. If you look at the history of denominations, which pretty much is only since the Protestant Reformation, before the Protestant Reformation of 1517, there were two churches, the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Roman Catholic West. And before that, there was only one church that split in 1054. After the Protestant Reformation, you have the, almost like this explosion of denominations. And generally, when you consider denominations, though there are some differences, they, they usually come from like one or two verses in many times. And when you read those verses in the original languages, it's a lot more complicated than it seems. At the very least, you almost wanna say, hey, we can't split over this. We can disagree over this, but we can't split. And, and the inerrancy view really doesn't take into account the nature of original languages and the complexity involved. Moreover, it really doesn't do justice to how we know the Bible has come to be. The thousands of manuscripts and the pieces of manuscripts, which all are very similar in content, but with variances. And I should make that point, I should note that. When I talk about all these manuscripts, just so you know, they're like 99% identical, okay? They differ in like, maybe in Mark's gospel and chapter seven, verse three, it has a phrase there that in another manuscript isn't there. But it really doesn't change. So maybe it's saying after these things, Jesus went to Capernaum. But in the other manuscript, it says after these things, Jesus thought for a second and then he went to Capernaum, right? It's like little variants. None of the, the manuscripts that we found have said Jesus was not raised from the dead. We'd have an issue if that was discovered, all right? I wouldn't have a job. You'd be on your own next week. <laughs> None of them. The, the basic plot line of the story is the same in all of them. The variations are slight and different. But if we're considering the view of inerrancy as without error of any kind, what do we do with that? What do we do? Or what about the Catholics' Bible? Catholics are Christians. What about the Apocrypha? If, if they hold the inerrant view, then one, someone's right. Either the Protestants are right or the Catholics are right. What do we do? Now, the second theory of how we approach Scripture, can we trust it, is found in the book, The Imperial Decree. If you're familiar with the Da Vinci Code, you know how it goes. It really focuses on what's called the Gnostic Gospels. So in this view, in this theory, uh, in the Da Vinci Code, it sort of purports that Constantine's council of 325 in Nicaea established the final contents of, of the Bible. That it was all a political power trip, that people silenced the dissenters, and the dissenters in this, in this case were the Gnostic Gospels, which were other accounts of Jesus' life that arose. And they sort of silenced those people and executed them and killed them and formed um, the, the church as they wanted it to that history was written by the victors, so to speak. And it was silencing a key secret, a, a very sexy secret, which is that Jesus was in a sexual relationship with Mary Magdalene and some other things. 
And now, since we just discovered the Gnostic Gospels, we're discovering the true voice of the dissenters, the truth after all this time, and that we've been reading a lie, and that we can't trust this version, these versions of Jesus. The issue with this view is that it's just frankly not true. (laughs) It's a great story, but anyone who studies history realizes that it's not history in any sense of the word. As we discussed a little earlier, the Council of Nicaea in 325 was discussing matters of theology, not of biblical studies. They were not debating which books are part of the New Testament and which are not. They were discussing who is Jesus? How is he fully God and fully man? What does that mean? And the Meritorian Canon of 170 AD, which confirmed that the church was already operating with a set of privileged texts over and against others, which was from 170 AD, 150 years before the Council of Nicaea. And finally, this is the nail in the coffin for me, the Gnostic Gospels, which inspired these conspiracy theories, like the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Judas, are traced back at earliest to 200 AD. So they're saying that the earliest these Gospel accounts were written was 200 AD. And they're written in a form of speech, a grammar and a vernacular that is thoroughly Greek and not Jewish at all. Just so you know, when you read the New Testament, when you read uh, the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when you read the letters of Paul, you're reading very Jewish writing, which we could have a class and I could show you how. But this comes out of a Jewish context. The Gnostic Gospels did not. It would be like this, it would be this. What would you believe more? What is more credible as an account of the Civil War? A colonel who fought in the Civil War and he kept journals and then he wrote down his journals in a book, let's say 30 years after the Civil War ended. Would you believe him more or would you believe me who did research but wrote about my account or not my account, who wrote about the Civil War and because we live in a a day and age vastly different writing style than the 1860s and 70s. I wrote it in tweet format. What's more credible? That's kind of the difference between the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and the Gnostic Gospels. It was written in this Greek, like Greek structure, Greek grammar that was wholly different from the first century in Jesus' time in the Jewish context. So it doesn't really hold up. And then the final view, the final theory of what we do with the Bible, can we trust it, comes from a book called Forgeries and Falsehoods. And it says we don't know who wrote the Bible because this this, uh, concept of pseudepigrapha was a common practice. And pseudepigrapha essentially, uh, if you can put the, the words together, it's writing in the name of someone else and passing it off as someone else. So if I wrote an account um, on the environment in the name of Al Gore, you'd be like, no, I don't trust you. Because I know it wasn't written by Al Gore and it was written by you, I don't trust you. The issue is that pseudepigrapha was a very common practice in the first century. And it wasn't this malevolent thing. I've used malevolent twice now. That's a good day, that's a good day. It wasn't this malevolent thing. Pseudepigrapha was very common, it was virtuous. It was okay to write an account in the name of your your rabbi. So rabbis had disciples and they could write literature, they could write documents in the name of their rabbi. And it almost gave the stamp of authority. It's like a a foreword at the beginning of a book. It's an endorsement, so to speak. So that really doesn't help us out here. 
So then what do we do? What do we do with this thing? Can we trust it, knowing its history, knowing its complexity? Can we trust it? Especially when we get to passages like 2 Timothy 2.16, where it says all scripture is God-breathed. All scripture is God-breathed. And the word for God-breathed is theonoustos. Theos, meaning God, and pneuma, meaning spirit. So all scripture, meaning the canon, everything in this story is breathed by the one true living God. What do we do? Well, this is a theory put forth by a couple scholars, but I find it incredibly convincing. And it basically goes like this. What if our scripture mirrors our hero? What if what we mean when we say that the Bible is God-breathed is not that it's divinely inspired, but it's divinely incarnated. What is the logic of incarnation? Because it is the absolute center of who God is. Incarnation is this, that the one God who was fully God humbled himself and came in the form of a human, Jesus. And Jesus, when we look at Jesus of Nazareth, we are seeing 100% God and 100% human. And you're like, that doesn't make sense. I know, but that's what we're assuming. That's what we're affirming. That, God is, that Jesus is fully God and fully man. What if that the story that recounts his story, that recounts Jesus' story, is 100% God and 100% human? See, the main issue with humans, and it's always been this way, is we want God to look different than how he looks. What we want, what would make us feel really safe when we read this, is if we knew that this book was written from a God of fire and smoke and like shooting down energy and his unsuspecting authors. And they go into these ecstatic outer body experiences and they like shut their eyes and start writing and they come out with this beautiful thing. That would make us feel really safe. We don't have that. What do we have? We have a book that's super complex that comes from a very messy history that has images and residue of human fingers all over it. But keep in mind, friends, the Jews wanted a Messiah who would come as a conquering warrior, who would come in violence and warfare and throw off the powers of Rome and vindicate Israel. They didn't get that. Humans, we always want God to be different than how God reveals himself to be. And I would say this, as Jesus is both God and human, why would we expect his story to be anything but the same? The history of how the story came to be and came to be compiled mirrors the one the story is all about. Does that make sense? So Peter ends, he puts it this way, Jesus is 100% God and 100% human at the same time. So too the Bible. It belonged in the ancient worlds that produced it. It was not an abstract otherworldly book. It was not dropped out of heaven. It was connected to 
and therefore spoke to those ancient cultures. The encultured qualities of the Bible, therefore, are not extra elements that we can discard to get to the real point, the timeless truth, rather precisely because Christianity is a historical religion, God's word reflects the various historical moments in which scripture was written. God acted and spoke in history. As we learn more and more about that history, we must gladly address the implications of that history for how we view the Bible. That is what we should expect from it. In John 1, John says about Jesus, in the beginning was the word, the word of God. Jesus is likened to the word of God. Well, go with this. If the Bible is God's word in written form, as Jesus is God's word in human form. If Jesus, 100% God, 100% man, is the word of God in human form, then this book is 100% God and 100% man in written form. So trusting the story told in scripture is no different than trusting the one the story is all about. And you see this in, in, in nature as well. I'm not a scientist, so if I butcher this scientist, please forgive me. But it's the idea in quantum, uh, quantum mechanics, that light, I think it's the theory of complementarity, that light, which is the most elemental part of our universe, behaves like both particles and waves. And depending on how you observe it will change how it behaves. How can light at its most fundamental nature be both particles and waves? Maybe in the same way that Jesus at his most fundamental nature is both human and God. The logic is all there. It's always been there. And so the irony, says Peter Enns, is that both liberals and conservatives make the same error. They both assume that something worthy of the title, word of God, would look different from what we actually have. The one accents the human marks and makes them absolute. The other wishes the human marks were not as pronounced as they were. So the one says, because it looks so human, because the history of this is so messy, it can't be God. And the other says, because we see you know, God in this, we need to silence all the human elements of it. Both fail to accept the word of God as it's given to us. And we do this all the time. We always try to sanitize the story. Have y'all ever seen pictures, paintings of the birth of Jesus? What does it look like in these paintings? Well, Mary never has a bead of sweat on her forehead, which I don't have a kid, but I've heard that doesn't work that way. And Jesus has like a halo of light. What are we doing? We're sanitizing the story. I've yet to see a picture of Jesus purple and bloody and full of goop, right? But how beautiful is that? Because that's the story that the living God would subject himself to becoming, not seeming to become, but actually becoming fully human. Why would we not expect his story to do the exact same thing? And Jesus is standing looking at all of us like, I'm the stumbling stone. No one can accept how God actually acts. It's all through me. 
So insofar as we talk of the canonical process, how scripture came to be, what we're actually talking about is the reception of the word of God through time. The canon is the response of the church to God's will pressuring us, stirring us, shaping us through history. God is telling his story in the world. His word has been going out through every generation. And it's a word that is perfectly imaged in Jesus. When you look at Jesus, you see the word of God because he is the hero of the Bible story. And the logic of God has always been incarnation. 100% God, 100% human. That's Jesus, that's the Bible. And it's the Bible that we read through history and prophecy and primeval myths and proverbs and songs and letters and memoirs and vision. God is telling the story of his presence with humankind and it culminates when God becomes man. The Bible is the portal to the living God. You don't read to understand it, you read to behold who he is. So can you trust the Bible? Only if you're willing to trust Jesus. Will you pray with me? Lord, you're a, this is hard to understand. What does it mean when we look at you, Jesus, and we say that you are 100% God and 100% human? What does it mean when we look at your story, your Bible, and we say that within this book, it tells a story that is 100% God and 100% human? Forgive us when we feel like we need to defend you, God. Defend your story. You can defend yourself. You're not asking us to defend you. You're asking us to love. You're asking us to serve. You're asking us to read your story and allow you to speak to us. And so Lord, my prayer for for everyone in this room, whatever they may think of the Bible, I pray you draw them back to it. You draw them back to your story and you tell them, take up and read, take up and feast. Don't come to understand, come to see and behold and taste. Will you speak to us through your story again, Lord? Will you reveal that you truly are a God who is with us, that you are fully human and fully God. Give us understanding, Lord. Give us intimacy. Give us vision into that. Thank you, Jesus, for your presence here. Thank you for this community. Would you encourage us to go and to put that to practice? It's in your crucified and resurrected name we pray, Lord. Amen.